Good morning. Kids making their way out. Um, and I want to invite you to join me in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Looking there today as we conclude our stewardship sermon series, you may notice the title in your bulletin, there's a touch of, there's more than a touch of irony, there's a lot of irony in that title. There's two ironic points, I guess. On one hand, it's a question of our treasure, whose treasure is it? Is it ours? Another touch of irony is, what is the treasure? Is your treasure your money? Or is your treasure Jesus? And with that, I ask you a version of the question that I've been asking for the past few weeks. What are you doing with the money that the Lord has entrusted to you? And why? We're going to look to Malachi this morning. We're going to look to this text and see what the Lord has to tell us about stewardship. As we prepare to turn there, I want to frame it for you for just a minute. I'm going to read for you Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. That, those opening verses of Malachi's prophecy are, are sort of the, the foundational description of God's covenantal love for His people. And after the Lord rather strongly reminds us of His love for us, He he then applies that love to us in various areas of life. There's, there's this foundation, and then we'll look to Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, for the application in our lives of that love. Would you turn there with me now? Friends, your pastor may not be inerrant and infallible, but this word is. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered But we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And turning to Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of our fathers, you, from the days of our fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes? And contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. 
and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me. Father, this is your word. And it is the word that you have given us for this morning. We pray, I pray, humbly, dependently, that you would give us your promised blessing the blessing of your Spirit to guide us in understanding, to point us to Jesus, to grow us in Christ's likeness. This is your word. We ask that you would do it with power this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So I've been asking a version of the same question for the past three weeks. And I followed that question up with the same question. Why? Now, admittedly, a portion of that why question is meant to draw out the negative of what we're not doing. But more importantly, that question why is is meant to draw us to the positive. To the beauty of God's love and the wisdom of His design. In other words, the question of why is meant to draw us to the Father. I have a picture in my mind of the Father's drawing that I believe illustrates His foundational love, the foundational love that, that, is, that is declared so prominently at the beginning of this prophecy and is unpacked for us throughout the prophecy. Maybe it's a picture that you've lived out yourself. It's Maybe a picture you've seen from a distance. It's a a picture of of a father, strong, loving, kind, standing in the shallow end of a swimming pool, teaching his child how to swim. There's a child at the edge of the pool looking somewhat antsy, somewhat anxious, nervously looking at the water with with one eye and looking at the father with another debating, what should I do? That father is looking out with outstretched arms, a smile on his face, words of reassurance and invitation saying, just jump. You can trust me. I'm good. might ask yourself, how do you see that picture, James, in what you just read to us from Malachi? It begins in verse 2 of Malachi chapter 1. The Lord is speaking through the prophet Malachi and he says, I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. This love the Lord speaks of here in Malachi 1-2, it is a love of choice. When the Lord says that He loves, is speaking of choice, not affection, though most certainly His affection follows His choice. The emphasis in this text is on election. 
It's a doctrine that is found throughout the whole of Scripture. We see it in the very beginnings of God's Word. And in Genesis chapter 3, when the Lord is, is Himself proclaiming the gospel to Adam and Eve, saying, I will provide a Redeemer will crush the head of the serpent. And in those words to Adam and Eve, even on the heels of their original sin, the Lord is, is drawing out the dividing line between the offspring of the woman, the spiritual one, and the offspring of the serpent. Those whom He is calling to Himself and those who are His enemies. That truth of God's electing love continues. We see it played out in His covenant with Abraham and spelled out specifically in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17 where God promised to call Abraham, who was a pagan at the time, called him to Himself and promised to bless him and through him to bless the nations. And then we see this promise of God's electing love and and Abraham's grandsons, Jacob and Esau. God loved Jacob, not Esau. God chose Jacob and in the fullness of time would change his name to Israel. And through him would come twelve sons who would, who would form this nation, this people that God had chosen was drawing to himself. Some of us struggle with this doctrine of election, this truth of election. And I want you to understand something. I'm not here this morning to defend the Word of God. I'm here to proclaim it. God declares His, His foundational electing love in the Word. His choice of Jacob was gracious. God chose to love Jacob before Jacob had done anything good or bad. There was nothing in him deserving or worthy of that love, but God claimed him and drew him to himself and blessed him. It's God's grace. It's his electing love. But some of us also, many of us, struggle not merely with the declaration over Jacob, but with the declaration over Esau. Again, I'm not here to defend the Word of God. It doesn't need me to defend it. I'm here to proclaim the Word of God. Jacob he loved. Esau he hated. There's a contrast in favor that is played out between these two lines, and we see it in verses 2 through 5, if you wanted background for what we see in terms of this promise of destruction, it would do you good to go back and read the one-chapter prophecy of Obadiah. Obadiah is, is God's prophecy over the people of Edom, the Edomites. The Edomites were, were the offspring, the, the lineage of Esau. And in Obadiah, the Lord lists their sins against Israel, His chosen people. They harassed Israel. They stole from them. They gloated over them in their destruction. And they turned the people of Israel over as refugees to the invaders. And God punished them. Please understand, there is still discipline for the elect, the 
father who loves his children disciplines his children, but the father who disciplines his children also brings restoration, yet there is no restoration for the enemies of God. That is what the Lord is saying over Esau. And the contrast is meant to further emphasize the foundational love that God has for Israel. That's what we have here in these opening verses. God is strongly declaring His love for His chosen people. But there's something important that we need to see here. This letter, it's not to Israel. It's to Judah. And for some biblical background at this point in time, Judah and Israel are a divided kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom that that ran after other gods and never returned. And the Lord punished them as He sent the Assyrians to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and there was no restoration. The southern kingdom of Judah, the tribe of Judah, the home of Jerusalem, also turned after other gods, yet God had chosen them. They were disciplined, they were punished, they were sent into exile in Babylon, but they were returned because the Father loved them and the Father who disciplines His children restores His children. Again, the contrast with Edom is meant to further define God's chosen people and His love for them. God did not restore Edom. He did restore Judah. And this movement from the promise to Israel to the promise of Judah continues into the New Testament, showing us that God's chosen people is this movement beyond racial, ethnic Israel to the true Israel. How do we see that in this text? Well, maybe verses 2 and 3 sound familiar to you, even if you've not read Malachi. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans in Romans 9, 13 cites these verses. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. As his biblical foundation for God's foundational electing love. But Paul is not writing to Judah. Paul is writing to the church. A church made up of ethnic Jews and Gentiles. God is showing, even in the first five verses of Malachi, that He chooses a people for Himself, Jew and Gentile alike. It is God's foundational electing love to Israel, to Judah, and to us who are in Christ Jesus. To those of us who have been called from darkness into light, who by God's own free grace have been chosen as recipients of His love, He has caused us to be born again to a new and living hope, to be reconciled through the blood of Christ and to be given the gift of His indwelling Spirit. Friends, this is the beginning of Malachi's prophecy where God says, I love you because I chose to love you. He tells us that His covenantal love does not The rest of the book of prophecy is is the unpacking of the implications of that love for us. 
As he calls us to receive that love, to rest in that love, and to live like we're in the family. With that, we turn over to Malachi chapter 3, 6 through 12, and we see that our obedient and loving response to, to God's electing love is to return, to return to Him. Verses 7 and 8, God, God is saying, hey, there's been a generational pattern of turning away. He's saying that the generations before you have abandoned me, but here in this particular moment in time, God speaks to his beloved people. And he is essentially saying, regardless of the pattern of disobedience, regardless of the pattern of idolatry, you return. You change the course. You respond to my love. It's a direct and personal plea that a covenantal God issues to his beloved saying yes there are generational covenantal implications for disobedience but I'm calling you you to receive my love to respond to my love to return to return means to repent now to repent means to confess. But it means more than that. It's more than I'm sorry. To, to repent is to confess and to change, to turn back to the Lord. That's God's call here through Malachi, but Malachi rhetorically anticipates the next question that the people might ask. How? How are we to return to you? He responds by saying, stop robbing God of tithes and contributions. It's an accusation. They had been robbing him by withholding the tithe. But in that accusation, there's also a command. The command is to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Let's, let's unpack that for a minute. Tithe is a simple word. Tithe, in Hebrew, means tenth. It's the tenth. But in calling for the tithe, we're, we're reminded fundamentally that God has already provided. He's not calling them to tithe on what will come. He's telling them to tithe on what He has already provided. It all belongs to God. And He, in His gracious love has provided by entrusting to his beloved gifts, resources. And he's calling us to respond to what he's already given by returning to him a portion, a tenth. We respond to him by faithfully stewarding those resources through the tithe. Next word speaks of the contributions. Contributions are those offerings that are over and above the tithe. He speaks of the contributions throughout Exodus as the call to, to generosity over and above the tithe. That's what God's people do. And then he speaks of the storehouse. The storehouse was the temple. 
The temple was where the people brought these tithes and offerings in to store them. Much of the tithes at that time were their, were their, uh, the fruits of their labor. It was their, their agricultural products. And they brought those tithes into the temple. It wasn't something the Lord was saying, hey, go do some good things out in the world with this. No, he's saying, bring them to me into the temple. This is all part of God's call to bring the whole tithe by faithfully stewarding the resources that he's entrusted to us. And in it, there's more than paying dues. This is a perspective on on worship, a perspective on living in relationship with the Father who provides. Yet some of us wonder about the tithe. We wonder, is that just an Old Testament provision? We're beyond that now. Right? Because Jesus has come. Well, I would direct your attention to Matthew chapter 23, 23. Matthew 23, 23, the Lord is issuing, issuing a series of woes over the Pharisees and scribes. And, and there in that passage, Jesus calls out the Pharisees and scribes because they were, they were very carefully sort of segmenting off even their spices so that they could tithe even their smallest Spices. Now, the woe that Jesus offers is not calling them out for that. He actually says this you should have done, in effect, affirming the tithe. The problem was not the tithe. The problem was that they were displaying a tendency to do the bare minimum. And he calls them out for neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Jesus is calling them to more, to love, because they had been loved generously. Begs the question for us, why do we struggle here? We all, on some level, struggle with this call to financial stewardship, and many of us struggle even to hear the word preached on it. Yours truly included. The ESV uh, study Bible talks about this passage and, and, and as it outlines it, it describes uh, the, um, the Israelites begrudging tithing. Begrudging. Maybe another word to use is, is stingy. <laughs> Are we stingy? This is more than an issue of money. Speaks to the deeper issues of our love, our loves. What does it look like for us to be stingy with our love? What's the issue behind the issue? On one hand, we tend to love ourselves more than we love God. On the other hand, we we don't trust God to provide for our needs. The ultimate caricature for stinginess is Ebenezer Scrooge. Charles Dickens' character in in A Christmas Carol. Scrooge would hide off in his dark corner and pinch pennies. He gave nothing. He cared for no one. He loved no one but himself. He trusted no one. We can conjure up an image in our mind of Scrooge. We use his name synonymously 
with stinginess, but most of us don't think of ourselves as a Scrooge. But what about the mindset? Where do we struggle to be told what to do with our money? Where do we struggle with authority in these issues? It exposes our hearts. It exposes who or what we love. It exposes who or what we trust. That's why we spent four weeks on stewardship, because this is a heart issue. It's a faith issue. Ultimately, it is a worldview issue. With our worldview, we, we must see that God is creator and owner of all, and we, as his children, as his creatures, are called to live under him in li- with lives of worshipful submission. We think about that worldview important for us to ask, is he my authority? Is he my father? Is he worthy of worship in all of my life? The implications to these questions okay, speak to how we respond to God's word in its entirety. Speak to how we respond to his call and his word to tithe. When we consider that this call and this authority comes from a loving and generous Father, it helps to move us along the path from stinginess to generosity. And I hope we see as we look to God's Word that His call to obedience, even maybe particularly in this text, comes with it a promise, the promise of God's continued covenantal blessing. Does verse 10 sound a little off to you? Put me to the test. Aren't there admonitions in the word of God not to put the Lord our God to the test? Well, yes, there are, but what if the Lord is telling us to test him. Yes, Jesus speaks to the word of God when he says he is not to test God, but he was saying that in response to the devil's temptation. Here, God is inviting, no, he is commanding the test. I know I've had the conversation with a lot of you. Some, a lot of you have been to see Maverick, Top Gun 2. You don't have to raise your hands. It's just a great movie. But if you haven't seen it, you probably saw the advertisements for it, and so there's no spoiler alert needed. What I'm about to share with you was one of those commercials when Pete Mitchell, Maverick, was called to go back to Top Gun. He shows up there and stands before his superior officers, and we know that Maverick has never been one who's fond of authority. And so he, with a smirk on his face, says, well, I quite frankly didn't expect an invitation to come back. His officers rebuked him. They're called orders, Maverick. This is not an invitation to test God. These are orders. God is commanding us to test Him. 
But what is the test? Will God honor His promises? Will God do what He said He will do? Will God really be faithful to His covenant? Yes, it's all of that. But on the other hand, it's a test for us. Will we trust God to provide? Will we trust God to provide? And will we give the whole time? Will we give generous offerings? Will we allow Him to provide in our lives? God promises, as one commentator put it, to meet all of our needs and not all of our greeds. Some of us hear this and think, oh goody, I can test and and God will pour out blessing and abundance on me. That's not what God is saying. He's saying, I will provide what you need. The provision that he promises here is providing for and protecting the crops. Specifically, the Lord says, I will open the windows of heaven. Promising rain. People were dependent upon the crops, and God promised rain for them. It was His, his delight to provide this blessing. Understand, the reason there wasn't rain was not because of climate, war, climate uh, whatever. What am I trying to say? Yes, that. That's not why it wasn't raining. It wasn't raining because it was God's discipline. Again, the father disciplines the child whom he loves. It doesn't mean that everything bad that happens to us is a result of our sin, but it's clear in this case that it is. And yet the father promises to return the rain. And then he promises to protect the crops from the devourer. That's the locust. This is God's promised return. You may have wondered what that meant for God to return. He never left. He doesn't change. No. But the father who disciplines the child removes that disciplinary action when the child responds, when the child returns. The father's return is a return to his default state of generosity. It's not a reward for obedience. It's a return to default blessing that comes through God's covenantal promise to his people. So part of this test is to actually trust God, to be obedient to him by bringing the whole tithe in. And he promises to return his covenantal blessing of providing for the crops. But you need to see in this text there's more than a provision of rain the promise of a redeemer. Malachi opens with God's electing love. It ends with a pointer to Jesus in fulfillment of God's electing love. That is the flow of the whole book, but it also informs the parts. Because ultimately we need more than rain and protection from locusts. We need salvation from our sins. Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. I need to say something, and it's something that is not popular. But it is clear here, and it's clear in the whole of God's word. It is a sin to withhold the tithe. Not tithing 
is a sin. It's, it sounds shocking. It even sounds shocking for me to say these words. It's impolite. <laughs> but why? Why do we think that way? Well, because oftentimes when we talk about stewardship, we're talking about wise principles for living rather than about a command from God. But the Word of God is explicit here. He calls it robbing God to actually steal. That means to break the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. And that it is God that we are robbing means that we are also breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Friends, sin brings discipline. And the discipline came about in in the withholding of the rain, in the sending of the locusts. But sin also brings a curse. Discipline was the removal of that provision and protection. It was the curse of the ground. But there's a deeper curse that's at play here. Ultimately, the curse for sin is death. And yet, the God who chose and the God who does not change is the God who chose to secure His beloved children through His Son. Jesus came to remove the curse by becoming a curse Himself. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we read these words, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Did you hear it? God's promise to his people Israel, his promise to the Gentiles to love them secured through his son, Jesus, who on the cross bore the curse that was due to us. It is the foundational love that God had for Abraham, for his offspring Israel, for Judah, and for us in Christ Jesus. And he calls us, just like he calls them, To return, to return to his foundational love through an obedient and loving response. But he also assures us he hasn't changed, he hasn't left. His covenantal blessings continue. That picture of the father in the pool teaching his child to swim, he teaches that child to swim for a couple of reasons. One, because he wants to protect the child from danger. But also because he wants the child to know the blessing and the fun of swimming. Do you see the goodness in it? The father is God. And he is teaching us a life of blessing and enjoyment that is a life of worship. We are the children standing at the edge of the pool, afraid. How am I going to make it on my own? That water's deep and I don't know how to swim. But the father is standing. He's smiling. His arms are open wide and he's drawing us to himself, reminding us that we are not on our own. He commands us. The test is 
entrusted you with time, with our talents, and yes, even with the treasure of our money. So brothers and sisters, what are you doing with the money that the Lord has entrusted to you, and why? Father, you are good. You are wise, you are holy, you are eternal, and you are gracious. I pray that you would shape us by your grace, that we might truly know what it means to be dependent children who receive your discipline and receive your love. Shape us, we pray, by your word. In Christ's name, amen.